gather here this morning. And Lord, as we turn to you to hear your word, God, that you would speak to us. It is your voice that we need to hear. We, are, we confess that we are filled with anxieties, stresses, and concerns of this life. But Lord, once again, you would uh, clear our minds. They would bring us to a place of hearing your truth through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be desperate to hear your uh, voice, hear your word, that can truly transform our lives. So we uh, commit this time to you. And we do also lift up the volunteers who are serving in different capacities in this church in different ways, uh, that you would also, uh, while they serve, that you would use them to teach your word uh, to younger people. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the title of my message today is Christ and the True Righteousness. Um, you know, from time to time, you come across a passage that contains pretty heavy stuff. There's a lot of like uh, heavy theological content. And today happens to be one of them. Uh, so fasten your seatbelt. Uh, you know, I think we need to really, as for many of us who have been growing up in the church, there are times when we need to really just take in some solid food, right? And so uh, that's what we will be talking about today. So let me uh, start by asking you a question. Do you know what allows you to be with God in our salvation? What allows us to be in, 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 in the presence of God? What is the requirement or substance or the qualification of our salvation? What makes us saved from God's wrath? Is it faith, the grace of God? Yes. After all, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, aren't we? And we are saved by the grace of God, aren't we? It is all true, right? Definitely we are saved by faith and by the grace of God. And so that's usually our understanding of our salvation. But that's not really a complete picture of our salvation. There is still something that is really lacking. That is, what is the substance? What, is the qualif what qualifies us to be in the presence of God? Those, faith and grace, are, in a way, to be really, to dissect it, it's the vehicles or the means of salvation. It is how we are saved, right, through faith by grace of God. Faith or grace gives us access to God, but what is really that, that, that substance, what is the qualification of our salvation, what is required of us, to be in the presence of God. Like, you know, when you apply for college, right? You take SAT. Is taking SAT the same thing as getting into college? No, right? It is a vehicle. It is a means of getting into the college that you want to apply and just get into. What allows us to be admitted to college is your SAT score 
and other factors determined by the uh, admissions office, right? So just because you took the SAT does not mean that you will automatically be going to college. It's just a way for you to apply, for you to get into college, right? So in that way, if you look at it from that sense, taking SAT is a means, but your SAT score and other factors are the substance or the qualification of your admission to college. Likewise, faith or grace is a means of salvation, right? It takes us to God. It opens the door. It unlocks the door and makes salvation accessible. It makes it possible for us to be in the presence of God. But what is the substance? What is the qualification of our salvation? What does God require of us to be allowed to be in his presence, to be in his kingdom? The answer is righteousness. It is righteousness that allows us to be in his presence. Now, what do we mean by righteousness? And this is for you, Pastor Jay. You know, he talks about, you need to define the terms. You got to just talk about the definitions. And so I just want to just define what it means, what we mean by righteousness, right? And maybe it's in the, uh, in the slides, but basically it is uh, righteousness is essentially conduct in accordance with the requirements of a particular relationship. Can you put, put that up? I think I made a slide. Uh, the righteousness, once again, is um, yeah, righteousness is the conduct in accordance with the requirements, uh, requirements of a particular relationship. So when we are in a relationship with somebody, right, there's got to be a certain uh, requirements uh, that are needed, right? And when we live according to it, that is considered righteous, righteousness. And because God is the one who created, it, created us and this world order, we must live in accordance with this, uh, with this uh, standard. And when we do that, it is righteousness before God. So in our relationship, when we live in this world, because we owe our existence to God, it is only right for us to live according to his standard. Right? And when we do so, then it is righteousness before God, because we are living in accordance with the requirements. It is not our definition, or it is not our standard that we are talking about. Whatever we think is right, and good, and we, if we act according to it, it is not righteousness in the eyes of God. It is our righteousness because we think it is right, and because it is the right thing to do in our own standard by our own definition. So when we do so, it may be our own righteousness in our own eyes, but it is not the righteousness that God looks for and calls for, and it is required, that is required of us. What Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden was not righteous. It wasn't. They thought that it was fine and appealing to eat the fruit. But because they disobeyed God, it was unrighteous in God's eyes because they refused to live 
according to what God has commanded them. He said, do not eat this fruit. But, we said, but they said, oh, no, not really. I think it looks pretty good. And this serpent says that we can become like God. It sounds very good to us, so I'm going to do it. So it was unrighteous in God's eyes. And because of that, we became enslaved to sin. Unrighteousness ruled the day, and it's still going on to this day. I just heard, uh, you know, maybe some of you guys are already aware, um, within the last 24 hours, there were two mass shootings, one in Texas and one in Ohio. Over 30 people were killed by this senseless violence committed by the uh, white uh, nationalists. It's just all the symptoms. It just all surfaces, all the depravity, all the sinfulness that we have, the hatred that we have for one another. It all comes up. Our mind is so depraved that we justify our, justify our actions, ourselves. These guys, they had a manifesto too. It's justifying why they were doing such horrible acts. And because of all this unrighteousness in each and every one of us, it has created this unbridgeable chasm between us and God. So what God requires of us, for us to have a relationship with God, the way God has designed us and God has created us, we are to live in accordance with His standard. And He has made it known to us through His Word. But when we do not live according to to it, then it is unrighteousness. But when we do so, then it is righteousness before God. So simply put, righteousness, according to God, is trust in and obedience to Him. That's what righteousness is, really. We are to trust God. We are to trust in His Word. We are to obey what He calls us to do and calls us to be. Righteousness is this moral behavior conforming to the will of God, what God has revealed to us through his word, when we conform to it, then that is our, that will be considered, uh, considered righteousness to us. And that is the true righteousness. That's the only righteousness that is really, that's, that matters. It does not matter what we think, what we are doing is right. It is what God sets the term and that we live according to it. That is righteousness. So this righteousness is what allows us to be in his very presence. Now, do you understand that? Our salvation is not just, oh, I believe in Jesus, so I don't have to go, uh, so now I'm going to go to heaven kind of thing, right? It's a very shallow understanding of the great salvation that God has accomplished for us through Christ Jesus. Yes, we are saved by faith. We are saved by the grace of God. What truly allows us to really allow us to be in His very presence when God is holy is the righteousness. Righteousness. That's what allows us to remain in the presence of God, even approach Him and to be in His presence for all eternity. That is more complete picture of our salvation. So then question is, what does this have to do with today's passage, right? Well, why are you talking about this? Well, hold that thought, because I'm getting there. Um, so today's passage is a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the classic statement 
of the, uh, the ethics, um, ethics of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is addressing the spiritual reality and the spiritual nature of his kingdom. And what follow, the, the passage that we just read, what follows this until the end of the chapter is all, in one, uh, is all on one theme. And it should be read in the light of this verse 17, the uh, opening remark in verse 17. Okay? It is important that its parts, all these things that follow after this passage, should, be re- should not be read or should not be interpreted in isolation from each other. There's like, examples of anger. There's an example of lust, um, taking oath, divorce, and all these things that follow. There are about six of them here. We tend to kind of just like, put everything isolated and then just, just look at it on its own. But we have to understand the theme here is Jesus fulfilling the law in verse 17. He has not come to abolish the law, law but to fulfill the law. So we have to understand uh, under that theme that we are to understand all of this as a small subset of this overarching theme. So this, uh, the sermon Jesus here addresses both inward motives and outward conduct in the following verses. And these demands, when we read them, and we'll get to it, uh, late, uh, not, not today, but these demands are impossibly lofty and so high and so strict that no one can possibly and completely obey them. No one can, really. Like when we talk about, you know, Jesus talks about anger, right? You have heard it said that, that, that you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you actually hated somebody, or if you're upset, or if you're angry with a brother, right, then you have already committed murder. You have already murdered that person in your heart, in your heart, right? Whoa, who who among us here has not been upset or angry with somebody? Man, if by this standard, I've killed a lot of people this week too. I mean, I have, you know, there are some people who are cutting in front of me as you are driving, or people who are driving, you know, with like, you know, texting while they are driving, and they're slowing down, they're swerving. Those things infuriate me, infuriates me. I mean, I get so upset, and I want to like, cut them off and then slam on the, I don't do that, but I want to do that. And because, you know, sometimes I hear the news that there are some people who actually die from road rage, right? They get into it and then the guy happens to have a gun and so like he shoots the other guy and he dies. Things like that. So I'm uh, afraid of that in my heart, but I was very upset, right? I get mad. There's a murder. Lusting after, uh, lusting after a woman. That already, just because you have not had that, uh, uh, that act of sex, right, does not mean that you are pure, right? If you lost after, lost after somebody, someone, you have already committed adultery in your heart. So all these command, uh, the demands that Jesus sets before his listeners and his followers, it's just impossible for us. So, I mean, I was sharing with my accountability group uh, yesterday, too. Like, when I used to come to this passage, these passages, uh, the following verses, all I felt earlier on was I just felt guilt and shame. Because, oh, my gosh, I'm so, I feel horrible. I really want to just live a good Christian life, moral life, ethical life, and be a good Christian. But all I hear is how awfully, like, I fall so short, and all I felt was guilt and shame. That's all I felt about being a Christian. Why do I want to be a Christian if this is all I felt? I didn't understand the gospel, right? 
But you see, these demands, therefore, should drive us. The point is that it should drive us to the grace uh, to, uh, on, on our bending knees and just asking and just desiring grace and mercy of God. Right? Not a single soul can ever meet these demands, and it only amplifies our need for God's initiative and His provision. See, the thing that the law, right, it, it's, it's one of its primary functions is so that we will not only understand that we are not living according, according to the standard of God, but that we are actually also, we are in need of salvation, that we are in need of grace, because on our own, we cannot ever meet these demands. And so the theme for this section, until the end of the chapter, is Jesus' fulfillment of the law. The subsequent examples contrast his teaching with the accepted understanding of the, uh, of the Old Testament law. So I want to, today, I want to focus on two main points that Jesus addresses here. And the first point is that Christ fulfilled the law. Christ fulfilled the law. Before Jesus talks about, uh, Jesus talks about the contrast between his teaching and the conventional wisdom, he cautions his listeners not to make the mistake of thinking that he's, by making the contrast, that Jesus is abolishing or nullifying the Old Testament law, especially laid out uh, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, all these things that are said there. Because he's making a contrast, people may think, oh, so Jesus is saying, uh-uh, those are no good, so that means he's nullifying, he's abolishing the law. He says, no, 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 not so. People may naively think that Jesus has come to nullify. But in fulfilling the law, Jesus says he does not alter, replace, or nullify the former commands. In fact, Jesus is saying that he upholds the law. Between him and Moses, there, there cannot be any real conflict. So now what does it mean when he says he fulfills the law? What does that mean? To fulfill the law here has multiple meanings. It means, it means it's not just one simple thing, but it has multiple meanings, different layers here. And the first and foremost, when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law, he means, or the, the fulfilling, it means to bring about what the scripture pointed to. It's to, to fulfill the law, it means to bring about what the scripture pointed to, the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament, the Old Testament points forward to Christ. You know, when we were studying Genesis, uh, if you guys remember, that we saw that even the very first book that was talking about the origin of mankind, origin of the world, in fact, that even Genesis foreshadows Christ, that there is plenty of uh, reference that talks about, Genesis talks about the coming Messiah and Christ. The Passover, it really uh, uh, foreshadows Christ. The Exodus, the sacrificial system, all the sin offering, uh, the, the guilt offering, 
peace offering, all this, all the sacrificial system that we read in the Old Testament, it ultimately points to one that can come and uh, uh, satisfy all these demands. The Day of Atonement, the scapegoat, and all the Messianic prophecies, all of it points to the coming Messiah, the anointed and the chosen one. And what Jesus is saying is by his coming, that all that the Old Testament was pointing to, that he has made that, uh, he realized, uh, his coming realized all that. What the whole Old Testament pointed to, all these promises and the prophecies, have been realized in Christ Jesus. The kingdom of God has become reality with the coming of Christ. So that's what it means when he says that he has, he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. You guys may remember on the, the Re- Resurrection Sunday, there were two disciples that were on their way to uh, uh, Emmaus, right? And then there's a stranger that comes along and joins them in their conversation. Obviously, the talk of town of the day was that the Jesus who was crucified uh, three days ago that there was an empty tomb. So these two disciples were uh, really just talking about that, and this stranger comes along, obviously Jesus. And then so they finally talk with him, and in the end, as they were just talking, they, it's as if like their, the, the scales from their eyes fell off, or it came to a thing, you know, the, the Kodak moment. It's like it just, it just came to the realization because Jesus told them, oh, you of slow and foolish hearts, should not the scripture meaning the Old Testament, be fulfilled in, the, in, in Christ. So he said, starting from uh, Moses all the way to the prophets, he was uh, testifying about what all these uh, Old Testament promises and the prophecies were about, and that it was concerning him. Right? Jesus says his coming, his life, his person fulfilled and realized brought about all that the Old Testament, the scripture, pointed to. In that sense, Jesus has fulfilled the law. People at the time have been wondering when this promised Messiah would come. And in fact, they thought that there were going to be a lot of Messiahs. They didn't think it would be just only one Messiah because there were so many predictions and promises about the Messiah that there is no way they thought that one person can fulfill all of them, possibly fulfill all of them. The, the Old Testament talks about the suffering servant, that the, the, the Messiah would come, but that he would suffer greatly, rejected by men. And there is also the, the, the prof, uh, prophecies about the Messiah, as if he's the son of man coming on, on clouds. There is a me, uh, uh, Messianic prophecies about how he's going to come and just establish the, the throne of David forever, for in, uh, in perpetuity, in, in, for all eternity. He would just bring back all the former glories. There, and there are many different types of uh, prophecies. So people say when they looked at all these prophecies concerning the Messiah, they said there cannot be only one person. There's got to be a, multi, a bunch of different messiahs that would kind of come, and one person would just uh, fulfill this part Another person is going to talk, uh, fulfill this aspect of the Messiah and this. So they thought that the scribes and the teachers of the law thought that there would be many Messiahs. Nobody ever thought that there could be only one 
They will truly come and fulfill all these things. But in Christ, He has fulfilled every one of them. So in that sense, Jesus, by coming and bring about all that the Old Testament has pointed to, He has come to fulfill the law. In another sense, and that's not the only meaning when we talk about when Jesus says he has fulfilled the law. In another sense, Jesus fulfills the law by observing it perfectly and completely in his own person and ministry. That when he lived his life, he was in absolute, complete, perfect obedience in accordance with the the, the will and the purpose of God, the word of God. And as I said before, it means Jesus is righteous. Jesus was righteous, the one and only Son. He was righteous because He lived the perfect, obedient life that God has demanded, God has called for. So, once again, Jesus fulfilling the law means that He has come and realized the, all the promises of the Old Testament, all that they were, uh, these things were pointed to, he has come to fulfill that. In that way, he fulfilled the, uh, fulfilled the law, and that he has lived a complete obedient life. In that way, he fulfilled the law. And, in, uh, and yet, there is also another. Not only that, Jesus fulfills or completes the law by explaining God's original intent, I- intention, brings out its perfect or inner meaning that people did not realize. He reveals the law's definitive meaning and expands its demands. So in that way, Jesus fulfills or completes the law. In other words, Jesus fulfills the law by establishing their true intent and purpose in his teaching and by accomplishing them in his obedient life. So the law remains wholly authoritative and demands the fullest respect from all of us in this sense. Jesus emphasizes its deep and underlying principles and total commitment to it rather than mere external acknowledgement and obedience. Jesus not only expounds on the true meaning, but he lives it too. His fulfillment of the law this way makes him righteous, and this uh, this leads to my second point. But once again, Jesus fulfilling the law means that he brought about what the Old Testament pointed to, and he lived a perfect, obedient life, every single one. And also, on top of that, Jesus fulfilled the law by actually, truly explaining the deeper meaning, what was on the surface level, there was, even with just a surface level understanding that people had, no one could really truly live up to it. No one did. But he's saying, uh-huh, you thought that was it? No, the true, the original intention, the deeper meaning behind all this, say when it comes to anger, lust, taking oaths, divorce, all these things, the true and uh, deeper meaning behind it is this. So he goes even deeper. Right? He explains it, and it still meets every demand. In that way, Jesus fulfills the law. And the second point, so Christ fulfilled the law. The second point that Jesus brings out here is this, Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. You know, at the beginning of my message, we talked about righteousness as conforming 
to the will of God. And in verse 20, it says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? Here, Jesus expects his followers to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. A seemingly impossible task. Because if you... Uh, because the scribes at the time, they were the experts. And they were the lawyers in Jewish court, in the religious court. So they were really well-versed. They knew ins and outs about the, the law and the scripture. Right? They were the lawyers. It's like, you know, can you imagine, we just have some issues, and then so we try to just go into, take, take passage into the court and say, he, I'm going to go against him. Right? And he's a lawyer, right? He, that's what he does. A lot of most of his day, uh, most of his time, and then we don't have, we are not versed. What do we know about the laws, right? So can you imagine trying to just go up against him in, in the court? It's not gonna work. Or maybe, maybe. Oh, he says no, but who knows? Yeah, <laughs> he's very good, right? So these are the scribes that just knew inside and out, right? They they were the experts, and the Pharisees were just, they were scrupulous in their attempts to follow God's law and the traditions. So how could Jesus reasonably call his followers to a greater righteousness than theirs? What is Jesus saying? Jesus did not criticize them for their strict observance of the law, but for their emphasis, emphasis on outward conformity to it without a proper inner attitude. He's talking about the attitude of the heart. Jesus is talking about the attitude, what's truly in our hearts. The Pharisees, the scribes, they were content to obey the laws outwardly without humbly examining their own hearts and looking to God to change them. What they were teaching, their practice, and they're teaching their practice and everything was, as long as I do it, it doesn't matter how I feel at the time, how I feel inside. I am so sick and tired of like doing all these things, but because the God says to do it, oh, okay, I'm just, I just have to do it. With whining, complaining, it doesn't matter. They say, as long as you do it outwardly, then you have obeyed the law, that you are righteous before God. To them, it was following the letter of the law while ignoring its spirit. And Jesus rejects the Pharisees' interpretation of the law and their view of righteousness by works. And he preaches a righteousness that comes from only through faith in him and his work. Outward observance of the law is what religiosity is about. Religion is all about, it doesn't matter, as long as you appear, as long as you conform outwardly, as long as you comply outwardly, like your actions, your uh, uh, words, uh, your speech, as long as it comes and then it's, it's in conformity to what the law says, what the, uh, what the rule says, then you've done your job. You are fine. You are accepted by God. It does not matter what's in your heart as long as you follow the law on the outside. You know, when slavery was widespread before the Civil War, did the slaves voluntarily do what the white masters demanded? No. 
They had no choice but to obey them for their survival. Just because they obeyed them externally does not mean that their heart was in it or that they genuinely cared. External compliance says little about the inward motives that people have, we have. And Christianity, as opposed to religion, is the fact that God looks at our heart. That's what God looks at. What counts is not what we do. Yes, it does count, but what God looks at, what truly counts is our heart. What is our motive? What is our heart attitude? You know, we can easily fool other people with our compliant or religious behaviors, but we cannot fool God. We can never, ever deceive God. He cannot be deceived, right? I am so glad that all of you guys are here on Sunday morning, but what matters more, and I'm thankful, and I mean that, but what matters truly to God is our heart's attitude right here in this moment. When you come in, did you come because it's a routine? Something that you have to do on Sunday morning. Is that why you have come? And then as you just, you know, sit through the, the, the sermon, you know, is your heart like just wander around, you know, oh, when is he going to finish his message? Like, let's just get on with the rest of the thing. I just want to get this thing over with so that I'll just check my, you know, just check, you know, I attended church today. Is that your attitude? Is that your heart? This week, you know, as I was, um, you know, preparing for this message, once again, like, you know, I prepared. So on the outside, it looks like I did some study, and I did. You know, I looked at the commentaries and the study, meditate, all these things, and yet, and yet, you know, the first half of the week, I didn't pray. I, no excuses. Basically, I did not pray. I didn't, I didn't get in, uh, get in, uh, get bef- down before the Lord. I didn't commit this to prayer. Because, you know, I'm, I'm used to, like, I know, like, uh, sermon prayer. I know what, it, what needs to take place. So it became a routine. When, we, when it becomes a routine, if you do it, you know, just on a regular basis, it becomes a habit. And oftentimes, you can kind of fall back on that. And then, not really committed to prayer. So the first half of the week, I didn't commit it to prayer before God. I said, ah, I, I, you know, ooh, okay, this is kind of like uh, heavy stuff here, so I better like, just hit some books and then just make sure that I'm theologically sound and all, the, all these things. But I didn't pray. But unless I told you this, you wouldn't have known, right? And to you, I did my job because I prepared the message and I'm preaching it to you. But before God, I wasn't because my heart was not in it. Especially, so I had to repent in the middle of the, the week because God really convicted me. You, know, you are doing this out of, once again, habit. You are just taking this like it's your job, right? So I had to repent before God. What matters is to God, especially the first half of the week, my heart was not in it. My heart was not in the right place. So even though all the people may say, oh, He's doing a fine job. He's, you know, he's preparing. He's doing his job. He's a fine pastor. I don't know, but well, hopefully you think like that. But, but before God, my heart was not right. right. What God looks at is our heart. By you being here, I am thankful. Praise God that you are here. But where is your heart? 
before God because what God looks at is your, what's truly in your heart. Do you really love God? Do you come here out of your love for God? Or do you come because you feel like, yeah, I mean, I'm a Christian, so I should, I should come. Or, man, if I don't come, you know, Pastor Jay is going to just call and just stalk me on the Facebook. Is, is that, you know, why, why are we here? Right. What is the motive? Right. That's the true religion. So, but God looks at our heart. It's a heart religion. And there's no way around it. That's why, to me, the hardest part about uh, being a Christian or being a pastor is not so, it's about the struggle with my own self because I know my own heart. Sinful. I want to be lazy. I want to just kind of, you know, be minimal, just do the bare minimum and then just get by and just be accepted by people as, oh, he's a decent pastor. I don't have to just, like, you know, break my heart over it, sweat over it. Just do what is required of me, just barely enough so that it is respectable, just, just so that it will be, you know, decent, right? There's always a temptation for me to do that. And when it comes to serving God, right, just do the bare minimum just so that I can at least not be too uh, ashamed to call myself Christian. Just be a decent Christian. But if your heart really is not in it, then we have to really reconsider what we truly believe. Right? The true disciples know that they cannot do anything to become righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. So they count on God to work his uh, righteousness within them. And that is what the gospel is about. We don't even have a hint of righteousness in us. Not even a slight trace of righteousness in us. Because every intention, every thought, every motive is unrighteous before God because of our sinful nature. Everything that we talk about, everything that we think of, every motive, everything is unrighteous. And we cannot generate righteousness from within. The Pharisees and the religious thought that they could by observing the law. You talk about self-righteousness. As long as I just keep it, it doesn't matter what I think inside, and nobody cares, nobody knows, I'm okay. God accepts me. I'm fine before God. It removes awareness of the need for grace and dependence on God. The gospel tells us that we need righteousness apart from us because there's not a thing that we can do ever they can bring about righteousness within us. It's not self-generated, right? By fulfilling the law, the gospel tells us that Christ became a righteousness before God. And what's amazing is, and what the gospel tells us, is that this righteousness of Jesus has become ours. It becomes our righteousness when anyone repents of his or her sin and trusts in Jesus and surrenders his life to him. Then when we do so, when there is a repentance, genuine repentance of sin, and trust in Jesus Christ, then there is the righteousness of Jesus that gets imputed. It's like, it's, a, it's credited to our account as if, it is our, as if we have done it. Right? It's like the Venmo account like uh, transaction. 
But once it was there, but when you make the transfer, it comes into yours, and it becomes yours. That's what happens, because we can never, ever generate righteousness. We can never, ever live a life that God desires and God has designed for us to live because of our sinful nature. So the righteousness that we could never, ever achieve on our own, Christ became God's righteousness. And when we repent, humble ourselves, and turn to him and trust in him, then that righteousness of Jesus becomes, it's, it gets imputed. It's, it's a, I know it's a theological word, but it's, it gets credit. It, become, it, 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 it gets ascribed to us in spite of our rebellion. And God looks at the righteousness of Jesus in us, and then he declares us righteous. And that righteousness of Jesus in us that completely covers us, that becomes ours, it enables us to be in God's presence. God's requirement, the qualification and the demand for righteousness is satisfied in Christ Jesus, and it becomes ours when we trust. And that is at the heart of the gospel. Do you know this gospel? Do you believe in it? Because if you do, you cannot help but be changed. Right? And every time I think about the gospel, it really stirs my heart because from growing up in a really legalistic background, not knowing, I thought it was all about me. I had to just try harder. It was all about my willpower. I had to just try harder and harder to become so that God would love me, right? To finally understanding the meaning of the gospel, it has forever like altered my course, altered the course of my life and my Christian conviction, right? My motivation in life now is to know this gospel, to embrace it, to know Christ who loved me so much and to live according to it. The reason why I serve is the love of Christ. Love of Christ compels me because when I think about what Christ and what God has accomplished for me through Christ, right, I cannot help, but it motivates me to serve. Before, before I understood the gospel, it used to, I, you know, the motivation was so that out of fear. He's like, oh man, if I don't do this, then God's not going to be happy with me. I, 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 one time I read, not too long ago, pretty, uh, last week or something, it was at a Facebook thing that I briefly read, and it says something like, um, the religion says, the religion says, I messed up. My father is going to be, uh, my, my father is going to beat me up. That's, re- that's what the religion says. But the gospel says, I messed up. Now I better call my dad. I better go to him. And that's the gospel, right? It is the motivation of understanding the love and the grace that God has for us through Christ Jesus. That even though we couldn't, something that we could never achieve on our own, Jesus achieved by fulfilling the law. Jesus has become the righteousness before God, and he gives that to us when we trust when we repent. So you see, when we think about our salvation, yes, we are saved by faith in Christ Jesus. We are saved by the grace of God. 
what truly qualifies us, what allows us to be in the very presence of God, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we have never earned. But by simply being humble before Him, realizing that we are sinners in need of change, transformation, in need of righteousness that would allow us to be in His presence that we can never get, we can never accomplish. Jesus has done for that. And now, by trusting in that, it becomes ours. And now, Christ is, has become our righteousness. That is our understanding of our salvation. And that should be the, the foundational understanding of the gospel. So my uh, challenge to all of us is to, do you really know this salvation? Do you understand the implication and the meaning of the gospel, what Christ has done, what God has done for us, where we are, where we were? Do we know all these things or do we simply still go through just each day thinking, Jesus, yeah, I mean, I believe in you, so you, you told me that if I believe in you, I can go to heaven, right? Now I can just live my own life. Uh, or I just live my own life and then right before I die, I'm just going to believe in you, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to heaven. That is such a shallow, under, childish understanding of our salvation and our, our understanding of the gospel. May we really come to a deeper understanding and then may this uh, understanding of the gospel truly transform our motivation, our motive, what's really in our hearts, what motivates us to live a Christian life. Let's pray.